0: Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have made fascinating career changes and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. Today's inspiring guest on Freedom Hunters is Sally Hepworth. Sally started out her career in event management and HR, but it was while she was on maternity leave with her first child that she finally followed her instinct for writing and penned her first novel. Her first book, The Secrets of Midwives, was the top-selling debut novel in Australia in 2015. Fast forward a few years later and Sally is the best-selling author of five books. I had the pleasure of meeting with Sally at her Bayside home in Melbourne earlier this year, At the time of recording, her latest book, The Mother-in-Law, was about to be released in Australia. And at the time of this episode of Freedom Hunters Going Out, it has just been released in the UK and USA. I absolutely loved talking with Sally about her career journey and how she made the change out of her HR career and into full-time writing. She has some valuable advice about not giving up in the face of rejection. She also had interesting insights about the idea of women's fiction and how writers of the genre are having the last laugh. I was also fascinated to hear about where she gets her inspiration from. You can follow Sally on her Instagram, at Sally Hepworth. Her Instagram stories are hilarious, full of Sally's trademark wit and commentary on the realities of parenting. She's well worth a follow. If anyone feels like they have a novel in them, then this episode is for you. Even if you don't have aspirations to write, you'll get so much from Sally's story, particularly about staying determined to follow your passion. I really hope you'll enjoy the episode. So, hi, Sally. Welcome to Freedom Hunters. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. When you were at school, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Okay. I always knew I wanted to do something to do with writing, but I never thought that writing a novel or becoming a novelist was a career that you could have. It sort of felt like something that old drunk men did from their cabin in the woods. Um, and so I thought to myself, maybe journalism was the thing and I still remember going to a a course at RMIT where you do a one day is this for me kind of session and thinking this isn't what I thought. You know, they were saying how you had to read newspapers every day, every single one of the newspapers and I read, you know, Dolly magazine and um, Who Weekly and uh, Hello.
0: The hard-hitting (laughs) gym. (laughs)
1: So, I thought this is not the kind of writing I want to do. So, I let that go. Mm. Um, I looked into other kinds of writing things. But when I looked at creative writing courses, it didn't really have a clear vocational, um, you know, output at the end. So, I did something with a very clear vocational output and did an arts degree. Oh,
0: really? Which uni did you go to?
1: Monash, Clayton.
0: Okay. Yeah, my
1: uni. Was that your uni yeah, yeah. Oh. Why did I not see you there? I don't know. What you were you doing, law? Yeah, oh, arts and law. Oh, I don't know. I didn't see you around the Menzies building? No. Well, I was there smoking cigarettes out the front back in the day. Oh, no
0: way. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, I did that, and it wasn't a vocational um, degree, but in fact, yeah. my arts degree was the best thing I ever did just to have a general kind of education, what, which. Yeah, what did you major in? history uh-huh. and I minored in uh, Koori Studies, which is the um, Aboriginal community that we sit on here in Australia. So, most people were well, here in Victoria in Australia. Yeah. Um, and so, what could be, you know, less useful for a career than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, you know, it's really set me up for what you learn in an arts degree. I'm so vocal about my passion for arts degrees because I think so many people say that you do an arts degree and you end up with, you know, do you want fries with that? You know, that's what you need to learn yeah. to say because that's all you're going to be qualified to do. Yeah.
0: Or you get a nice hobby.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um But what you really learn is how to formulate an argument, how to be informed about the things that you are talking about and how to um, make sure that you have got credible sources for um, the things that you say. And so you really learn how to be educated further. And I think in my career as a writer, that has just informed everything that I write.
0: And tell me, what was your career path after university? What jobs did you have?
1: Yeah, so I I came out of my arts degree. I actually then went straight overseas, went to London, stayed with you in Ireland, remember, Um, and had two years in London where I worked as a nanny. And then I came home and I thought, what am I going to do? And I found a job as an administrator at an events management company, which was the most exciting, woefully paid and best job I've ever had really for the, for what th- did
0: what did you like about
1: it well we organized music festivals which was oh, awesome. really cool so we did the Byron Bay Blues and Roots music festival Melbourne music festival um, we got to meet a whole lot of um, musicians and um, you know it was just we got tickets to a whole lot of things which made up for the woeful pay <laughs> um, and I did that for three years and then I moved overseas. My husband's job moved us over to Canada, got there and I got a job at a oil and gas company in human resources. And I really enjoyed that. So, I went back and studied HR management um, for two years and I worked there for three years while we were living there. And at that point, I got pregnant with my first Child yeah. and the Canadians are wonderfully progressive, and they were going to pay me for a year of maternity leave. Oh my god, that's just right. unheard of, isn't it? I don't know what wow. it's like in the UK. Do they are they more evolved than we are in Australia? Um, I'm not sure, sh- I'm not 100% sure. Mm. I think it's
0: roughly the same. Okay, more
1: or less. well, no one's as good as Canada as far mm. as I know, and they pay you for a year. So I thought, well, I've always wanted to write a book, as I said before, I, I didn't know. Um, if it was something that I could do, there's no degree that kind of qualifies you to, to write a book, but um, I thought it was something that I was always had been interested in and how I've got this year. Um, where I'm going to be paid, and maybe I'll give it a go. Um, I, I didn't really take into account that I was going to have a new baby to look after that year. <laughs> <laughs> it was really a first-time mother's stupid thing to do, but you know, it was because I'd made the decision that that I wanted to do it. I just carved out time, and and I think with with everything that you do, and we'll probably talk about this later, you have to make it a priority and you have to go without, like you do, you have to go without weekends and you have to go without, um, you know, you say no to things you'd rather do because you've decided that you want to do this instead. So um, that was a big big year for me. So
0: is that how you first started writing? It was just you decided I want to write a novel or – was it a more gradual thing where you had been writing for enjoyment or how did you
1: get into it? Yeah, that was the first time that I um, that I started writing a novel um, and, and I really thought that it was kind of out of the blue. I remember thinking, wow, you know, people will be surprised. And when I – I was living in Canada, obviously, but when I wrote home to some of my friends, they all said, oh, well, of course, of course you were going to write a novel. Um, and one of my friends recently – said to me I was looking through my old um, yearbook school yearbooks and you had a story a short story printed in almost every one um, at uni I wrote for um, Lot's wife and um, but it was something that I didn't really connect with with then later writing a book. But I always loved words and um, I always wanted to work with them. And you look back and hindsight's so clear that um, mm. obviously in the meantime I was pursuing things like HR qualifications and working in event management. So, um, yeah, so anyway I ended up writing and loved it.
0: And did you go – so you were writing your novel uh, mm-hmm. while you are on maternity leave. Mm-hmm. Did you go back to work or how did that – or work that transition from um, – starting to write and having your job and then becoming, well, what you are now, which is a full-time author.
1: Mm, Yeah, it was a slow transition. Um, So that year I wrote – I did write the first book or the majority of it during that year. In the meantime, my husband was transferred back to Australia so I was in this funny kind of good position in the end that I didn't have a job to go back to. So that one year stretched into 18 months where I was still writing that book and I was thinking, will I go back to work? Won't I? Um, we needed the money. So, I eventually went back to work three days a week in HR when my son was 18 months old. And on the other two days when he was sleeping, I was just doing the same thing I'd done for the year before. I was using nap times and bedtime and weekends and things to, to keep writing by that point 18 months in i'd finished the first book i'd had some interest from a literary agent Um, i'd been sending it all over the world to see if anyone would read it and it's a really difficult process to get anyone to read it um
0: in the publishing houses
1: yeah yeah um what i did not not everyone in the publishing world will do it this way here in australia you can send direct to a to a publisher um, but in the US and the UK you almost always have to have a literary agent so that's a, the middleman between you and a publisher and I wanted to get a literary agent. Um, so, how did you go about getting a, a literary agent? Um, so, I did a lot of research. Most of my research for everything, the book, writing, the how to get an agent, how to find a publisher was on Google. No way. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people who want to pick my brain, Google is a wonderful thing. It's the best. Yeah. Everything's on Google. So so that was how I figured out what to do. And I, the first instance, it was how to write a novel and Google had lots of, I wouldn't recommend it. Any particular way, and I now don't use any, you know, way. I've kind of it's evolved, but at first, you know, it gives you an answer. Um, And in the next instance, I'd finished that book after about eighteen months, and I typed in how to get published, and um, (laughs) and one of them said find a literary agent. Um, But I read more than one, you know. Don't don't just read the first thing and think of that as gospel. I, I really got myself quite immersed in the field I became quite obsessed and I think obsession is there for a reason because I think if you're obsessed with something you're likely to become successful at it Mm. um so don't feel bad if you become obsessed with anything I think obsession is good but um I became really involved in the world. I was reading blogs that literary agents had written on how to get out of the slush pile. I was reading um, blogs of authors who had been successful, um, also of aspiring authors who were in a similar boat to me and what they had done. So, really trying to learn from what other people had done first I queried every literary agent in Australia and they all rejected me quite rightly because it really wasn't a very good book um, but it was my first attempt at getting right, um, getting published. I then thought instead of being turned off by the fact that I'd been rejected by every literary agent in Australia, which a smart person would have done, I threw the net wider and I started um, querying. So querying means sending them a letter to ask if they'd like to read your book um, or an email. Um, I started querying agents in the US and the UK, and lo and behold, <laughs> so uh, I and, and this is a good tip. Anyone I know your your podcast isn't particularly for writers, but um, I started querying agents who were new and building their list, so they were looking for new talent because obviously everyone wants to be have the biggest, best literary agent who represents Stephen King or um, Jojo Moyes or one of those big authors, but they're likely to have full books and not be looking for the next big thing because they've got the next be- big thing. Mm. Um, and I found an agent who was taking new clients. She liked the book. Um, we then worked on it for about a year of editing. So none of this happened quickly.
0: So your agent helped you with the editing process as She well. did, yeah. Wow. She
1: gave me lots of comments mm. and um, and I went back and and worked on it again for another year. And then, this is how things don't happen quickly. It went out on submission, so that means she was sending it out to publishers, and it got rejected again. Just rejection, rejection, rejection. Um, but in the meantime, I was writing another book because I thought, okay, this is this is what I want to do. I've done it once, and I thought to myself, even if I don't get this book published, I will um, have a backup. You know, I'll be ready, and I'll say, here's another book. And so that's what happened. I had about three four months of rejections and then I finished the second book and I sent it to my agent and I said well what about this one and she read it and said no I don't think this book is going to sell either and she had some other news as well and that was that she had decided to retire from agenting (laughs) (laughs) and I was no longer gonna have so that wasn't a great day (laughs) no it's you know the trajectory of of joys and horrors but that was a real low point yes yeah. um but she said and this is where there's a light at the end of the tunnel but she said that the owner of the agency that that she worked for was going to read all of her clients manuscripts and decide if he wanted to represent them and um and if he did then we could potentially go with him and if not back to square one looking for an agent and writing a new book because the first two it hadn't sold so that was about another few months of waiting there's a lot of waiting at this point I was probably two years into the writing journey people now call me an overnight success which I really enjoy because <laughs> there's a lot of lot of nights a lot of overnights um but in the end, he came back, Rob Weisbach, who's my agent today, and he said that he liked the book and that he wanted to represent me. Um, so I'm now with him. We have worked through, I think, six books together and I was having dinner with him in LA a couple of months back and, you know, he's just a, a wonderful agent. But that it, it's not always a straightforward process is my, my point. So yeah. so you, do-
0: you had to deal with a lot of rejection. Mm. How – I mean, How do you, how did you stay positive and focused on your end goal with, in the face of all the rejection?
1: Mm, mm. That's a good question. And I think it comes back to what I said before about obsession. I'd really just sunk my teeth and made a decision that, that this was the career that I wanted. And also, because I'd become so immersed in it I knew about rejection I knew that it happened to everyone I'd read all those glorious statistics about all of the people that rejected um, JK Rowling before uh, Harry Potter was picked up and um, quite foolishly I thought well you know maybe I'm gonna be the next JK Rowling so a bit of fools um, confidence is also a good thing when you're starting out because that's the only thing that's gonna keep you going Um, and And also, I think that the important thing when it comes to writing, and I suppose this can be um, put across all careers, is not to get stuck on one book. Um, The first book, I I still know a lot of people who wrote a book and then they spent the next few years just pushing that book and just querying agents that they hadn't queried and and, um, trying publishers and just doing everything they can to get that particular book published. And in fact, as it happened, my first book did get published in the end. The
0: first one, the first
1: one, which really and and it was it was um, once I signed with Rob, the the agent that um, that I'm still with, he said, well, why don't we try this in Europe? Why don't we see if um, because it might be picked up by English publishers or German publishers? Because this particular. Sorry, English publishers or French publishers, because this book was set in France. And um, in fact, it was picked up by a German publisher in a very small little deal, and it was only published in the German language. So, my very first book to be published was published only in German. So, you couldn't even read it? (laughs) <laughs> Couldn't and thank goodness, you know, because it really wasn't a very good book. But the point was, is that um, that in the meantime, I just kept writing, and in a way, I feel like that book and the second book were kind of my ten thousand hours. You know, they talk about getting your ten thousand hours of to become good at something. Yeah, and um, and. And I really think that if I hadn't have just kept – instead of getting bogged down on trying to sell that first book, if I hadn't have just plowed forward, there's new hope with everything that you try, a new book or a new – if you're creating an invention or, you know, whatever you're doing, each time you get a new chance um, to be successful or at least with writing. So, I think to answer your question about rejection, just plowing forward and trying again and trying again with a fresh book was how I dealt with rejection
0: yeah i think it's so useful all the um you know all the articles and conversations that are happening nowadays about failure because it's it's now something that Mm. you just accept okay yes it's going to happen as just a part of what i'm doing yes and it should never stop you from continuing and achieving what you want to achieve
1: that's true and talking about it i have a great bunch of girlfriends who all talk about it i talk about everything um and and that just normalizes failure doesn't it the mm. blogs the the openness about it um i think it's really important
0: so tell me how did you get to that point where you were able to quit your hr job and then write full-time
1: okay so i i let's go back because I'm breaking up my story I know um, at the time that I, I continued working from when my son was 18 months old um, when uh, I was then pregnant with my my second child so I was working I was writing I was pregnant with my second child and I went on maternity leave a second time um, at that point while I was pregnant I was writing the secrets of midwives which was the third um, book so there was the the first book that ultimately got published in German the second book that is in the bottom, virtual bottom drawer and will never see the light of day again. And the third book that I was writing, this is year three after I'd started the whole process. And at this point I had my agent um, who I'm still with and I wrote this book and I got to the end of it. I actually delivered my baby and the book in the same week. Oh Um. my God, so you were busy. It was a busy, busy time. (laughs) Um, But as I said, this is book three, year three. You know, the process was not quick. And this process was entirely different from book one where it was just rejection, rejection. This time I found out in... Within a week of it going on submission that there were several offers. Um, they were all American publishers because my, my agents in New York. So he was working to his, um, and, and really New York publishing was where I wanted to be. It's the kind of publishing hub of, of the world. So, um, yeah, within a week, we had several offers on the book. And in the middle of the second week, we had accepted an offer that was lucrative enough that I could quit my job and that writing became my full time job. From then, and I, I hadn't, I wasn't working because I just had my baby um, then. But I never went back to that three-day-a-week job, and I've been writing as as my say, full-time job. I do it four days a week now. Mm. um, And I have a nanny to look after my children. So, I I don't like it if people think that I'm looking after my children. And I I feel like people sometimes picture me breastfeeding a child, vacuuming the floor, cooking a meal and typing at the same time. So, I think Mm. it's really important I have childcare. It's my job like anyone else has a job. Yeah. so So, you treat
0: those four days as work days?
1: They're work days. I leave the house. Um, Even though I do have a beautiful home office, it just stores my books and gathers dust because um, I still have, I have two children at school. I have one child that is two and still at home. So, my nanny is at home with her. I leave the house at 8am every morning at the same time as my husband um, when our nanny gets here and I go to my local library, which is the best workspace in the world.
0: Oh, I love that because I see all your po- your Instagram yeah. posts yes. from the library. It looks like it's a happening place, Sally. Oh,
1: my God. I'm going to – I actually, in the back of my mind, I haven't got a plot for it yet, but I'm going to write a book about libraries. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're budding romances in there and there is all sorts of drama. A man had a heart attack who was sitting next to me. Oh, my He's God. alive. He lives. Thankfully. Um, there's a lot of drama in the library. But anyway, I work from the local library, which is the best workspace, shared workspace. It's free. It's temperature controlled, heated and air conditioned. It has free Wi-Fi. It has a printer. It has everything that you could possibly want. And for authors surrounded by books, it's ideal. Wow. Mm. So, are
0: there a lot of other people using it as a workspace as well? Yes. I have a crew.
1: Yes. A lot of students. I sit next to a, a paramedic who's studying to become a more advanced paramedic we're friends bill um and there's a photographer fiona who works in there doing her so it really is a great workspace for anyone i think that is starting a business or um you know not wanting to invest in in um a a shared workspace or if they don't have the room at at their house like everyone libraries please it's just the best best space yeah
0: so if you can't afford we work just go to your local library
1: yeah, what's WeWork? Is that oh, a shared yeah, workspace? yeah, in the UK it's oh, like a shared workspace kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, those things are great, aren't mm. they? Those oh, shared fantastic. workspaces. Yeah. But library, you know, is, is really the ultimate. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of libraries. Um, but I'm in the library between 8 and 6, Monday to Thursday or 8 and 5.30 because then I have to toddle home and get home by 6. And it means that A... I can't take phone calls in there because you get crabby looks from people if you're on your phone. Um, so, that keeps me focused on the work. Um, it means that mentally for me to physically go, leave the house and go to work is really important because I am not going to put on a load of laundry or tidy up. Not that I'd really do that anyway because I'm quite messy, but, you know, in theory. Or, or you know, do do things that aren't work. I'm physically at another place. And then lastly, for my children, I think it's really important that they see me go to work. You know, I'm now the primary breadwinner for the house and they see their dad go to work. And I remember them saying, oh, daddy's gone to work and mummy's on her computer. And I thought, they don't think I'm on Facebook or something. You know, and now they say mummy's at work. Um, So, I think it's important for everyone. Yeah. And I read
0: an interview with leanne moriarty recently Mm. who who is the author of um big little lies and the husband's secret and these amazing
1: i love her she's amazing
0: yeah i love her well you've met her even yeah Yeah. a few times yeah she's great yeah and she was saying that she has really had to defend her work uh against people who have just dismissed it as chick lit Mm. because it's uh, focused around a female protagonist or, or a group of female protagonists mm. do you think that attitudes are changing towards female authors uh, or is that still the
1: case yeah I mean Leon Moriarty's having the last laugh there isn't she oh, totally. I mean she's the most successful female author in the world right now so um, but she's definitely paved the way for that and and she I talked to her about this recently and she calls what she writes domestic suspense and and because a lot of writers who write women's fiction have got um, mixed feelings about the title women's fiction because there's no men's fiction. You know, what men read is just called fiction or it's categorised by the genre that it is crime or um, autobiographies or whatever it is, whereas there's this category women's fiction, which is really interesting, isn't it? Mm. Um, I think that that is a problematic title for it. But at the same time, I do unapologetically write with women in mind as my audience and I have um male readers um but but I do have female protagonists are books about women's um inter- in things that would be more likely to be interesting to women mm-hmm. so I, I I'm not I don't have a strong opinion on it one way or another um which is unusual for me um other than the fact that yeah, women's fiction is problematic, but is it changing? I think just from the sheer success of of the big women's fiction titles, mostly Leanne Moriarty's, also Jojo yeah. Moyes, and um, you know, there are Marion Keys and all of those wonderful authors have paved the way for new authors coming up writing about those topics.
0: Absolutely. Mm. And how do you get your ideas for these stories and your characters? These really amazing female. Uh, characters and the storylines are
1: fantastic. Thank you. I, that, that come from everywhere. You know, I always wish that I had a really quick answer, like they come from the news. Um, for me, for, well, I can take you through the books that I have written. Mm. Um, the, the secrets of midwives came from my second pregnancy. I was pregnant with my second child. And so I wasn't reading all the books about, what to expect when you're expecting, or, you know, how to breastfeed a child, or what to do when they're crying in the middle of the night. Cause I'd done all that and I considered myself an expert, or I just didn't want to read about it because, you know, it was, it was coming really fast at me and I just wanted to pretend that it wasn't happening. But I did. Have babies on the brain, and I was interested in reading about it. And so I started reading fiction about midwifery and um, and babies and birth. And I was reading some fantastic books about midwifery. One called *The Birth House*, which was set in the 1800s, um, and some th- the *Call the Midwife* series, which I think you've got in the UK as well. Mm. Were books before it was made into the series. I was reading them and. That really, my own pregnancy combined with all that reading that I was doing inspired the idea I thought, what if – there was a book about multiple generations of midwives. So, we could tell these stories, the 70s stories and the 50s stories and the current day stories alongside each other. Um, And so, that was what really my real-life pregnancy and that reading inspired that book. Um, The Things We Keep was inspired by a news story that I saw about a woman who had early onset Alzheimer's and she was diagnosed at age 31 in the same week that she had been um, she had confirmed her first pregnancy so oh, wow. and I remember watching that that news segment and I was 31 and pregnant at the time and so it really kind of rang home to me and I wasn't looking for a book topic I was writing The Secrets of Midwives at the time but when I finished writing it and I was looking for another book idea that was still in my head and and I feel like sometimes these stories choose you you know you kind of it's it's hung around for a reason and It wanted to be written. So, so that was the things we keep. The mother's promise was also inspired by a real life news story. Um, and the family next door was inspired by, uh, I was, I'd had my third child by then. I've written through a lot of pregnancies and babies. Um, And at home with three children, I was really housebound that year. And I started to pay attention to what the neighbours were doing. I'm a very nosy neighbour. I'm Mrs Mangle of the (laughs) neighbourhood. They'll know that reference in the UK, right? (laughs) Neighbours. Neighbours. And I started to think because I was trapped at home and the family next door is about a group of neighbours and everything's not what it seems behind the picket fences i started looking at the man taking out his bins and thinking you know is there a dead body in there what are you really up to and what would what would it be like if if the next door neighbor was up to something or was hiding something um so that one was back to being inspired by real life and then the mother-in-law yes
0: yeah, so the mother-in-law <laughs> is uh it's just been released in the uk at the time that this podcast is going mm-hmm. out what is it about and where did you get the idea for
1: for it? Okay, well, it's about, I'll start with the idea, um, which came when my my in-laws, my British in-laws um, from the Isle of Man had come to stay after the, the birth of my third child. And I should say here that I'm very close to my mother-in-law. We get along very well.
0: I was going to uh, say, how does your mother-in-law <laughs> feel about
1: it? I've spoken to her. She has read the book and she is still speaking to me. So Good. that is a relief. Um, but in fact, it was my father-in-law who was, the impetus for this book. And, and I'm also very fond of my father-in-law, but um, he is a talker. God love him. It's in the family. And he talks and he talks and he talks. And so, he was staying on this particular trip and 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 just talking to me. And the, the topic that he kept bringing up is, what's your next book going to be about? And I didn't know what the next book was going to be about because I just had a baby and I had this elderly man talking his way into my brain about it. And I remember walking around the block with him, with the baby, I was out for fresh air and he was asking me, what's the next book about? What's the next book about? And I just turned to him and I said, it's about a woman who murders her (laughs) father-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and he was delighted <laughs> because he thought this was his fifteen minutes, and he said, "This is perfect." You know, when you, um, I'll accompany you on the book tour, and when it's made into a movie, I will come down the red, you know, red carpet with you. And it was around this time that I made a slight amendment to the um, to the topic, and I made it about a woman who murders her mother-in-law because I thought if someone's going to come on the book tour with me, at least my mother-in-law is very helpful so my father in law's still not speaking to me he's very <laughs> <laughs> which is a relief <laughs> um, but he yeah so so everyone's perfectly happy about it, but it is about a woman who murders her mother well it's not about a woman who murders about her mother in law it's about a mother in law who is murdered, and really the book starts off on a rainy week night, and Lucy and ollie are feeding their children dinner and a police car arrives at the house and tells them that Diana, who is Lucy's mother-in-law and Ollie's mother, is dead and that the, the circumstances are suspicious. So the book then divides into um, going back 10 years into the past to find out all the relationships between these family members, but particularly the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law, and then it goes forward in time as the family kind of try to unravel what happened to to the mother-in-law.
0: Oh God, I can't wait to read this. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: hope hope you enjoy it.
0: Oh, well. Well, I, I mean, I've loved uh, – I'm just about to finish The Things We Keep. Oh. And one thing that really occurred to me when I was reading it and also uh, The Mother's Promise is you write about really – uh, really important topics like uh, terminal cancer or terminal disease and uh, early onset Alzheimer's. And you write about it in a lot of detail. How do you do your research into all these weighty subjects?
1: Mm, mm. There's All of my books pretty much have required a fair bit of research. And um, take the Alzheimer's, for example. I spent about three months up front before I wrote a word Speaking to people and and it's amazing how keen people are to speak to you when they know that your book is going to be published. Um, people are so generous with their time, and I got in touch with the early on uh, the the Alzheimer's Association of Australia for that book, and they volunteered a member of their staff who met with me um, several times, who read the book to to ensure that it was accurate. Um, I also um, met with a, a neurologist who explained to me. Um, how that all worked. And, and I really try and get them to speak to me as a human being because with my my readers, you know, the, the learning of what happens in these situations is kind of a byline. It's got to be – the stories have got to be um, pulled by the characters and it has to ring true and it has to be human. So, my job is to find out – from the the professionals, you know how does this work, and how can I feed this back in a way that is not going to be too intense, too um, difficult to understand? I don't want to throw the reader out of um, out of the story. I want them to experience it as in a human way rather than an intellectual way, because I write fiction, you know, not nonfiction. So, but that's my challenge as the writer. Um, other stories like the family next door and um, and the mother's uh, the uh, the mother-in-law. The research I did was as I wrote because in those cases, there while they do explore health issues, the family next door explores um, postnatal um, de- uh, depression and, and other postnatal mood disorders, and um, the mother in law looks into a number of health topic health aspects as well. But I actually wrote the book, and as I wrote, I discovered what issues I was going to be exploring. So I really um, and I think this has just happened as I've learned to write better, I trust the process a little bit more and I don't know what I'm going to discover and want to explore as I write. Um, so, with those books, I wrote the book and I just marked it full of Xs knowing that, okay, I'm going to have to go back and explore um, postnatal anxiety. And I just wrote the book the way I thought it was going to go. Then I went back and researched and then I went back back into the book and populated those X's and made changes where I needed to because how I had imagined it wouldn't actually be accurate. And the last step is is always getting someone who knows to read it to make sure because the last thing I want to do when tackling these big subjects is be offensive, inaccurate to an extent. I think most people can understand that I'm not a new neuro, neurologist or anything, but um, I don't want to make any glaring errors. You just have to treat those kind of topics with respect,
0: yeah. What advice would you give to aspiring authors or anyone who sort of has an idea that they want to write and become an author?
1: Mm. Lots of things, but I think the main one is don't be afraid to fail. Um, don't be afraid to to try. You know, um, now I look back at some of the things that I wrote in the early days and I think oh my goodness like how how could I have written this and and the fact is when you start something you have to be bad Mm. um and it's really hard to be bad at things especially when it's in a public forum you know you're putting it out there you're putting a piece of yourself out there um and 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 You just have to keep going and going and going. If you find that thing that you are happy to immerse yourself in, it doesn't feel like work, um, it feels like something you want to know more about, then you're so much more likely to be successful. Because even now, I spend a couple of weeknights and a day on the weekend doing, as you do, um, doing my job, which I also do 40 hours a week. That that's my reality for the rest of my life, and and you, you're going to have to sacrifice things to do it. So it has to. If it's your real love and you're happy to do it, you're much more likely to be successful.
0: And what do you like the most about what you do?
1: First drafts. Mm,
0: yeah. Really? In what
1: way? Yeah, I like discovering the characters, discovering the heart of the book, um, and not feeling any. Um, pressure to get it right. By the time you, you get that um, first draft out and it's like a discovery, some people have, have likened it to being um, like archaeologists getting a, a big dinosaur um Bones out of the ground, and when you get them out, it's all dirty, and you need to then get out your tools and polish it down until it looks like a dinosaur, until it shines, and it is something that could go in a museum. But when you first get it out, and it's the same with drafts, you just get out, you vomit out this book of what you think it's going to be like. Um, and that process is really, it's like a discovery, and it's really exciting. And, and then the polishing, which is editing, you know, Mm. getting out those tools. That's great when it's done, but in the time you think, "Oh, I don't want to do this. Oh no, you know that that part is less creative, I suppose. Mm. It's all worth it, and it's amazing when it's done, but um, for me, it's first drafts. Other authors love the editing process, so so that's just me. Mm. First drafts is the best.
0: The two questions I ask every guest is, first, uh, what is success for you?
1: For me, success is continuing to be able to do what I do. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think that, especially in writing, people define it differently. Some people will define success by the the writers' festivals that they go to or um, being invited to certain things or awards that they win. Um but for me, just being able to continue to do my job, if I can do that forever, I have no plans to retire ever, um, then that I will consider that a successful career. Oh, it sounds
0: like the dream really. <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> to, be able, to be able to continue doing what you love. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I Fingers think, crossed. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then the second question is what is your travel tip for where you're from or where your family is originally from?
1: Okay, I'm going to twisted a little bit because I'm Australian born but we lived in Canada for three years yes. and we lived in Calgary in Alberta and my best travel tip if you're ever there is go to Banff and Lake Louise On and, and if you can stay at the Banff Resort. It was just the most magical place i've ever been um in all of my travels and i'm fairly wild widely traveled um go and stay at the Bamp springs go hiking there's elk there's deer everywhere it's like going into bambi or something you can just walk around go when it snows then go like to lake louise and go ice skating
0: okay Canada's just moved up my list of places I need to get to. <laughs> yeah, it's magic. Yeah. What time of year is the best time to go there?
1: I would go around in the lead up to Christmas would be beautiful mm. actually. There's lots of log cabins and things around. So maybe early December, that's when you definitely have snow and all the Christmas lights would be out. and Beautiful. I think that would be a good time.
0: Great. Sally, it's been such a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you so much for Thank your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It'll give the series a boost and help other people find it. And you can find out more about what I'm passionate about on my website, secondsister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love.